Welcome back to another episode. I'm joined by Def- uh, Jeffrey Jaskovic, who spent 16 years in jail for a murder he did not commit. So how are we doing today, Jeffrey? I'm doing great. Uh, wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so um, I just sort of watched your TED talk and I kind of wanted to come in a bit um, like blind to your story. So I was just wondering if we start off with a bit of the background, if that's OK. Of course. Absolutely. I'll follow your lead. Yeah, sure. So um, we just first explain to me like what it was like growing up where you lived, like the town you lived in or, or wherever you lived. Yeah, I lived I lived in Peekskill, uh, which was a uh, suburbs in uh, Westchester County, New York, which obviously is in the United States. Yeah. It was uh, it was a ethnically diverse uh, middle class neighborhood. Uh, I kind of lived a double life there. I didn't really think of it like that at the time. I mean, I was 16 years old. and yeah. But um, after school, I was kind of like the life of the party. So <clears throat> whatever activity I would suggest would pretty much be what we would do. If that was playing basketball or play stickball or play Monopoly, go play video games, ride bikes, um, even at games we made up. Uh, but that was after school. In school, I was quiet to myself. I didn't really fit in. Um, so, you know, that, that, that was my life in school. Yeah. Would you say you had quite a happy childhood growing up? Absolutely. Yes, I would say that. Uh, so, um, what was your, your school life like? Like, did you have many friends? Like what kind of kid were you like? Were you like a, um, a jock or? No, I was definitely not a jock. No, I was, uh, well, the kids were in school were actually, it was a different group of kids than what I had grew up, uh, playing with in the apartment complex in the surrounding areas. And they were actually a little bit older than I was. I had skipped a grade when I was really young and that never really caught up to me until um, in high school. So they really were into uh, parties and drinking beer and chasing girls and, uh, you know, I'm playing organized sports and I really wasn't into that at that point. I was yeah. more doing the activities after school, but you know, those were like pickup games. It wasn't really organized. So in school I was quiet. I was to myself and I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. And really that made me seem strange to the kids in the high school. Yeah. Um, so it, it was your classmate um, that was murdered, right? So um, just walk me through sort of the, the day that you found out um, that she was murdered. Yeah. So it, yeah, so I mean, it was it was in the uh, newspaper. It was in the the daily newspaper in Westchester called the Journal News, and it said that uh, no, actually, it was called the Evening Star. It later, became the Journal News, but it, it said teen found, and it had a picture. Uh, it had a picture of my classmate Angela Correa, and it just said that she was found naked um, from the she was found murdered naked from the waist down at a at a map as well in the area. And and what was your like initial reaction to that? When you first saw it, I was really uh, shocked and surprised because, you know, I mean, and I had the emotional reaction as well. I mean, I thought yeah. that, I mean, those are my, really my first brush with death. You know, I thought it was something that, uh, you know, that happened when people were much, you know, had lived a full life and everything. And yeah. so it was that I did have emotional reaction to it. But then again, um, you know, many people in the city of Peekskill did as well. I mean, to the point that free mental health services were offered to anyone at Peekskill who wanted it. Uh, so uh, it was quite a small town where you lived. So this must have been like the first murder in quite a while then. Yeah, it was maybe it hadn't been a murder in Peekskill in maybe 20 years. Yeah, so yeah. it had 
they had the, the whole, uh, you know, the city basically came to a, like a, a halt almost. I mean, parents were concerned with their own safety and, yeah. you know, safety of their children. They were picking their kids up from high school and bringing them back, you know, to, they're picking them up at school and bringing them home. Yeah. Uh, so just sort of explain to me how you kind of got wrapped up into being a suspect. So a couple of factors. So firstly, some of the kids told the police that they might want to talk to me because how we didn't quite fit in. Yeah. Uh, second thing was uh, the police thought that my having an emotional reaction to the death of a classmate was uh, suspicious. Well, what for, for being um, too emotional about it? Yeah, they oh, thought wow. that my yeah they thought that that was some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I had done. And then a third thing was that uh, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported yeah. to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator and. I unfortunately matched those characteristics. And, you know, so I think that was a reinforcing factor. Yeah. Um, so, so what were the police like with you when, when they initially questioned you? Well, when they initially questioned me, uh, they, I mean, they did the whole good cop, bad cop routine, where one officer takes a more aggressive role, whereas his partner pretends to be opposed to what's going on, but powerless to intervene. Yeah. You know, they initially were speaking to me as if I was a suspect, but then when they would you know, push too hard and I was frightened, became frightened and I wanted to get away from them, uh, you know, that's when they switched it up. And uh, Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was what they uh, was what, what, what they did. And, you know, that that really intersected with uh, with I want before I was a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. So yeah. them playing this good cop, you know, them protect Jeff is this junior detective helper theme. Um, was how they pulled the wool over my eyes as, as to that. And then also, you know, I, I did come from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life at all. And I began to look to the officer who has been pretending to be my friend um, as a father figure. Yeah. Uh, did your opinions of cops change? Like when you were in prison, like, did you think just like most cops are bad? I didn't think that most cops were bad, but I, but I knew that some cops were bad and I knew yeah. that it wasn't a few bad apples. I mean, yeah. It was a lot more than that, but I, I, I didn't overgeneralize. Uh, so, so but yeah, but prior to that, but prior to that, I mean, I yeah. thought that the cops were our friends and, you know, they would never lie. They're there to protect us. And, yeah. you know, if you're innocent, and you didn't do anything. Of course, you can talk to the police. I mean, why not? What would it, what could possibly go wrong? What could happen? So, so like what what grounds did they arrest you on? Was it like a, a kind of forced confession that they, they made you make? Yes. For about six weeks, they played this cat and mouse game with me. Half the time, they talked to me as a suspect. As I mentioned, that half they pretend like they need my help to solve the crime. They'd say things like, "The kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you." Let us know if you have it. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They ask me opinion questions. They congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Eventually, they got me to agree to take a lie detector test. And so, instead of going to school, I went to the police station for the test. They drove me from Peekskill, which was in Westchester County, New York, United States. They drove me to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County, a different county in New York, in the United States. So 40 minutes away by car. So I couldn't leave anymore on my own. I was totally dependent upon the police. They, uh, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. Uh, they gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. But 
uh, it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I thought, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's yeah, just get, get on. I guess you it. thought you didn't really need an attorney because um, you're going there willingly and they're just they're kind of acting like your friends. Yeah, exactly. And they gave me gave me countless cups of coffee and they didn't give me anything to eat the whole time I was there. I, wow. I didn't have an attorney present. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school. And uh, they put from there, they put me in a small room and they gave me the polygraph. So the polygraph is a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was pretending to be a uh, he was pretending to be a civilian. Wow. So he gave is, me is that like even allowed. Yeah, they are allowed to lie to suspects. Yes. Yeah. And he gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. Yeah. And then, and then from there, he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He, he invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again, you know, and he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Wow. So he was trying to like kind of skew the results and, and polygraph detectors aren't really that accurate to begin with. No, right they're now. not. Exactly. No, they're not accurate at all. No. In fact, even intelligence officers, you know, people who are, you know, like you know, the spy, the yeah. spy and intelligence thing, they're, they're trained on, you know, how to beat the polygraph. So that yeah. tells you all, all you need to know as far as that. Uh, so he, towards the end of the interrogation, he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. Uh, we just want you to... Uh, we just want you to verbally confirm it. And when he said that to me, that really shot my fear to the roof. And at that point, the officer had been pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but he couldn't do so any longer, that he had to help myself, that I had to help myself. And then he said, well, just tell them what they want to hear. They'll stop what they're doing. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concern my safety in the moment i was in fear of my life the fact that i didn't know where i was and no one else knew where i was either loomed very large in my mind i was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically then there was this push-pull dynamic uh the possibility of harm then this false promise so i made up a story based on the information which they had given me in the course of the interrogation um, by the time it was all said and done i collapsed on the floor in a fetal position crying uncontrollably wow. uh, Needless to say, I definitely was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. Well, uh, was this um, interrogation not, not recorded at all by them? No, it was not recorded. Nope, they did not record it. There was no audio tape. There was no videotape. No signed confession. Just the cop's word for it. And later when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. Yeah, but, but surely they're not allowed to use the, the polygraph results against you in court are they or is that not true they're not supposed to they're yeah. not supposed to but they did the judge allowed the polygraphers to keep to tell the jury repeatedly you know that uh he told that he allowed he allowed the polygraphers to tell the jury that i failed the test oh wow um so you got you got arrested um then and then when you like kept in like a holding cell until the trial i was kept in the jail for about 35 days but i got yeah. bailed out but, you know, it was uh, I, my life thought I was going back to my life when I got bailed out. But, yeah. you know, there was never any going back to that. I mean, they wouldn't allow me to go back to school as long as the case was open. Uh, I was a hated figure in Peekskill and, and in, in Westchester as, as a whole. I mean, everybody thought I was uh, guilty. There was a lot of prejudicial pretrial yeah. uh, coverage. And uh, since I was hated, nobody wanted to play with me. And to the extent that anyone wanted to, any of my former friends, their parents wouldn't would not allow 
would not allow them to. Yeah. So, oh. what was like your your mum and your grandma's initial reaction when they when they found out that you have been had been arrested? Yeah, they couldn't uh, they couldn't believe it. Yeah. Uh, did they did they believe you and were on your side about it? They were. They yeah. did. They did. They did, and they were. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, then uh, at some point before the trial started, I mean, the DNA test result came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen and the victim didn't match me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, instead of stopping the case, they continue to prosecute full speed ahead. Um, the prosecutor claimed, well, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud, and he claimed that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim uh, had been sleeping around, that she was promiscuous. Oh, well, you know, so basically like trying to slut shame the victim. Well, she was dead, but yeah, yeah. It was, but, it was kind of, but they were trying to slut shame her in the sense that they were trying to say, look, she was sleeping around. Yeah. That's why the semen wasn't yours. It's not that you're innocent. She slept with yet she slept with someone else, but before you raped and murdered her. So that's what that was. Uh, that's what that was about. And then they claimed that uh, they even meant, went further than that and mentioned someone by name that they claimed she had slept with. And but you know they never they never tried yeah. to prove that they didn't have DNA tests performed. They didn't call him as a witness. They just made the unsupported argument to the jury. And my my public defender basically didn't defend me. He didn't put my alibi witness on. He never cross-examined the medical examiner. He never used the never used the DNA evidence to challenge the confession. He yeah. wouldn't allow. He would not allow me to testify. Uh, you know, so he he basically didn't uh, he basically didn't defend me. And when you add it all up, I was wrongfully convicted and I was given a 15 to life sentence, which I was sent to a men's maximum security prison to serve. So, so what was that like, like being, being sat in the court, knowing that you're completely innocent and, and this guy won't defend you? Did you not want to sort of like scream out and just say like, I didn't do it and stuff like that? Well, I didn't realize that he wasn't doing his job. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't understand really that he, what was going on fully in, in the courtroom. So, I mean, he had said to me, look, just sit back and relax. Let me uh, let me do your job. You know, you're 17 years old. You know, you you already didn't listen to an adult once, you know, because my mother didn't want me to speak to the police. So he was like, so he used that. Well, you already didn't listen to the adult once. And look what happened. You know, let's not make that mistake again. Just sit back and let me do my job. So so when you were in that courtroom, did you you think like, yeah, I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm going to get out of this. Yes. I did 100%. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, Yeah. because I thought because I was innocent. I thought I believed in the court system. Yes. So uh, what was it like finding out like the guilty verdict? Like what went through your head? Yeah, I I remember they read the they read the first couple of charges. They found me not guilty. And then uh, then they read a few more charges. And then uh, they said, I remember hearing guilty. Yeah. And and I'm like, well, wait, wait a minute. I didn't. I, did, did I miss the word not? No, yeah. I couldn't have said that. Right. And then I heard guilty, guilty. I heard, you know, they pronounced three times. And, you know, uh, I, I felt like I was in some sort of nightmarish alternative reality because up until that point in time, uh, I thought that only the guilty were convicted. But, yeah. you know, they said what they did and I was taken into custody. Wow. So, so what's it like? Do, do they take you? Like to jail straight away? Do they put you yes. in where you're going to be for like the whole 15 years? No, they take you from the courtroom. They put you in a holding cell in the courtroom. Yeah, and then they and then they then they take you to the county jail. 
Yes. And at some point after that, they, they send you to the state prison systems. They send you to a reception area where they evaluate you. They give you the prison supplies. They decide what prison they're going to send you to. And from there, then they send you to like a more permanent facility. And, and that's where you stay for the whole time? I stayed for most of the time there. I mean, yeah. I, uh, that was Elmira Correctional Facility. Uh, I spent 13 and a half years there in total. But I mean, I got transferred from there to other prisons and then back to Elmira and then Elsewhere, I was there in Elmira three different times. So I did the bulk of my time there, but I also did a year and a half at uh, Shawangunk, and I did uh, three weeks in Eastern. And in the last twenty-eight days, I did in uh, I did in Sing Sing. Oh wow! So um, so just sort of explain to me your first night in prison. Like, what was that like? Yeah, As in, I like the main place you were going. Yeah, I, I remember it was really strange environment because I mean I walked down the cell gallery and you know there were prisoners there, their arms as big as my legs. And you know, even just to get to the prison, I was put in handcuffs. I had a chain around my waist and I'm fastened to the my legs are fastened together and fastened to the prisoner on the bus next to me. And the you know, prison the prison wall looks very large and you know, the barbed wire is looking pretty menacing. And I see the prisoners big that way and you know, they were all adults and a lot of them were guilty of serious uh, crimes. And I'm innocent. I'm 17 years old. Wait, you, you were so, so you're 17 at this point. Do, do you not go yes. to like a ju juvenile facility? You no, go straight no. into adult prison? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was charged as an adult. When, when in the United States, if someone is charged as an adult, they're sent yeah. to an adult max, maximum security prison. Oh, that's horrible. So um, you got into prison and did you have like a, a cellmate? Or did you get your own cell? No, I had I had my own cell. They they didn't they start they didn't start cellmates until uh, nineteen ninety five. Yeah. So um, like, what was like a typical day in prison for you? Like when you when you got there? Well, they would ring the bell at around six forty. Around around six forty, and that would then that would let you know that they're going to come around and walk around in another couple, another like you know you know five to seven minutes and they ring the bell again and they walk around, they do rounds and they're just counting to make sure that everybody's nobody's escaped and that nobody's and nobody's dead. Yeah. So they, they do the count. Then they'll ring the bell again at seven o'clock and they open the cells and you go to the, um, go to the mess hall, which is uh, another way of saying go to the cafeteria. Uh, and, and you, you eat and then you leave and you go out to your morning assignment. Uh, you go through a metal detector and you're there from the time you arrive, maybe around uh, 8.30, 8.20, 8.30, and you're there until 11 o'clock in the morning. And you go back through the metal detector and you go back to your cell. And then uh, they, uh, they, they count again. Then they, they ring the bell at 12 o'clock. You come out, you go to the cafeteria again. And from there, you go through the metal detector and you go to the your afternoon program where you'll be until about 3 o'clock, 3.15. And then if it's a, if there's, if it's a night that you have recreation and you go back to your cell until about five o'clock and then you go to the mess hall, if you choose to eat, and then, then they'll let you out for recreation at night at seven o'clock and you're there until uh, approximately quarter to 10. But if it's a night that they do not have recreation, then around three fifteen they, you, you, instead of going back to your cell, you go out to the yard for an hour. Yeah. And then you go back to your cell and then you go to the cafeteria and then you stay in your cell the rest of the night. Oh, was it, was there any opportunities to like have jobs there or like be in the kitchen staff or like wood shop or anything like that? 
Yes. Yeah. Though. Yeah. That would have been morning or afternoon uh, yes. assignments. So for me, I I try to orient everything I did that had some kind of potential benefit when I was released. So I got GED. I learned to type. Yeah. I uh, took a class on uh, use of computer on in in the uh, job setting that was called general business. Uh, I learned to paint. I took plumbing class. I got associate's degree. I completed a year towards the bachelor's. At the time, the funding was cut. I did work in food service. I worked in computer repair. I worked as a teacher's aide, helping other prisoners prepare to get the GED and yeah. even just to learn basic basic uh, writing and math. So I did all of those uh, programs. I used to go to the law library all the time and try to learn the law. And I would go read articles of the people that were exonerated. And from then from 1998 forward, I, I read like three or four nonfiction books a week from then until 2006. And I had during the whole all this time I was um, appealing my case also. So so what was like your twenty first birthday like in jail? Because I know like everybody wants like their twenty first birthday to go out, like have your first drink. Like so what was it like just, just being in prison? Like do you remember uh, the actual I, night of your twenty first birthday? I, I, I don't because it doesn't stick out. It was just like any blur. other day in prison, except for the fact that it was a little bit more stressful than what it normally would be because it was my birthday. So I mean, yeah. you know, birthday birthdays, holidays, special days are especially uh, stressful in prison. Do, do they do anything for it or let you have any privileges? No, it's just like no, any other day. Wow. No, I mean, I mean, you can get it. I mean, if somebody wants to come visit you, they can visit you. I mean, but that's yeah. they can do in a maximum security prison. They can do that any day. Yeah. So that's not really. They don't, but they don't do anything special for you that day. No. Yeah. So, so other than like, obviously your family, like, what was the thing you miss most about the outside world? I think just being free. I mean, just the simple yeah. things. I mean, just to feel, I mean, they, they used to, you know, when you'd be outside in the yard and when it would get dark, they closed the yard. So just being able to be outside in the dark or, you know, I didn't feel like I really got enough fresh air or, you know, not enough sun. So yeah. I missed, I missed, uh, I missed those things a lot. And I really hated being in a place where, you know, violence was part of everyday life in prison. There were, you know, three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. Oh, and, wow gang activity and violence that did not involve weapons. So you, you, there was a lot of violence and adrenaline. You always had to be alert. Yeah. So, um, so you were accused of um, murder and, and rape as, as, as well. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Uh, so, so what was it? Cause I know in prison, like um, other prison prisoners don't really take kindly to like rapists. Um, so right. what exactly. was it like um, everyone knowing that you were accused of that? Well, I, I don't I don't think they all knew that. I mean, yeah, lucky yeah. for me, they didn't all knew that. But yeah. I did. I did have that, you know, metaphorical bullseye on my back. It was always yeah. in the back of my mind that the concern that people would discover what I was incarcerated for. And that would be motivation on their part to assault me. So yeah. there were times in the course of my incarceration that I was beat up. And one time I nearly lost my life, but oh, wow. it didn't happen all the time. I mean, I got hit multiple times on the side of my head with a 10 pound uh, weight plate. Wow. But I mean, yeah, but I mean, not everybody, not everybody knew what I was incarcerated for. So, yeah. I mean, it was not like widespread, you know, thing all the time. I mean, at times people, some people found out and I had issues, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't widespread, but it was very dangerous. It was very dangerous for me. I'm kind of I'm lucky I survived, honestly. Yeah. So um, 
when when you're being like beaten up, do the guards not instantly like rush to it and stop it? They yeah, well, it. They, they they yeah they do. I mean, well, they they push a button. Yeah, they sound like an alarm. They have like a, a personal alarm system, and then like a bunch of guards come running. There's like some of the, I mean, all the guards have certain posts, but yeah. you know, the, but within those posts, they're also uh, on this uh, that special. Um, if the alarm is pulled, that they leave the post, and they and they you know so. The guard would pull pull the pull the alarm system, and once the once the cavalry arrives, then yeah. they'll go in and try to help. You have to you're on your own until then. Wow! <laughs> and so when you're in a fight, um, and yeah. someone uh -huh. else has started it, so they're uh -huh. beating you up afterwards. Yeah. Do you also get in trouble as well? Yes, you do. Yeah, you yeah, do because... when you haven't even started it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you're trying to defend yourself, then uh, you know you obviously you're fighting, right? Yeah, that's how they that's how they look at it. It's it's kind of crazy, you know. And and you know the implication of that. I mean, they they really had uh, they had they had sanctions that were imposed on the prisoners if they were found guilty of breaking the prison rules. So they yeah. would uh, you'd be kept in a cell twenty three hours a day, and they'd send you less food. They sometimes the food would be three or four days old. You know, they'd put you in a small caged area with maybe a pull up by yourself, maybe a pull up bar in it if you were lucky. You know, you could not go to the store and buy buy items and you know you could take two showers one week and three the rest uh, three and three the other rather than being able to shower daily and you could not use the phone while you're on that like status. A solitary confinement kind of like a solitary confinement yeah oh, wow. yeah and that could be yeah and that could be up to 30 that could be up to 30 days Oh, shit. So it, that so every time that yeah. you know every time that happened i was subjected to those sanctions i wasn't just dealing with the physicality but you know those those things um, yeah. happened, and then it's another, you know, it's another uh, another thing to explain to the parole board when you go to the parole board when they consider you for discretionary release. It's something else that they're probably going to ask you about. Yeah. Um. So, what's it like being in prison and and pleading that you're innocent? Because surely a lot of prisoners also plead that who aren't innocent. Well, actually, I mean, guilt, innocence, I mean, I never really found that to be true. So, I mean, yeah. prison, in general, prisoners are not really, they don't really discuss innocence while they're in prison. I mean, and there's okay. a variety of reasons for that. So, first of all, there's no point because okay. nobody that you're going to be talking to has the power to do anything to help you. So that's number one. Uh, a second thing is if you're there for a sex offense like I was, yeah. Um, as far as the charge, you would not want to call attention to yourself by saying you were innocent. Oh, really? You're innocent? W what is it yeah. that you're innocent of? What, what are your charges? Let me see the, your paperwork. And another concern also is that if you get the conviction overturned, and you, but you have to go back to trial, yeah. somebody might falsely claim that you, know, you, uh, you admitted to them while you were walking around the yard, you admitted to them that you committed the crime and so they would you know they might do that to try to make a deal for them to go home sooner so that's another reason why you would not why you would not say that and you know actually when you go to the parole board you know or or even um they want you to take the sex offender training program yeah which has a guilt admission requirement tied to it i mean i they, they, you know, they try to coerce me into taking that, but I, I didn't take it. But my point is that there's a number of settings in which actually saying that you're innocent, you know, actually, um, you know, can work work against you. So, so does it happen a lot? People um, being falsely falsely accused and convicted. I, I think that it's fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, wow! You know, in, other in the whole of America. 
In the Hall of America. Wow, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, there's a there's a website called the National Registry of Exoneration, which is yeah. a clearinghouse. They, they catalog exonerations across the country. And last time I checked uh, a few weeks ago, they were up to two thousand seven hundred and seventy five exonerations just from oh, wow. uh, 1991 forward. But I do want to share, though, that uh, yep. wrongful conviction is uh, not just simply an American problem. I mean, it's a worldwide problem. And I think that in countries where we don't hear about wrongful convictions, it's not because they're not happening. It's that nobody's being exonerated. Nobody's working yeah. on those cases. I mean, there's been um, you know, there's been a lot of there's been there's been wrongful convictions in the UK. Uh, yeah, Jerry Conlon and the Guildford Guildford Four. You know, yeah. everyone listening, if you got a chance, I think the best wrongful conviction movie out there is is that takes place in the setting of the UK. It was called uh, In the Name of the Father, uh, which was a play on words, uh, by the way. Uh, the exculpatory material, the evidence that proved that Jerry Conlon was, <laughs> and yeah. his father were innocent, was found in the file that was named after it was in his father's file the clerk handed his lawyer the father's file rather than his file and hence the the double meaning what was he yeah. accused of yeah of, of uh that was of uh bombing he was accused of doing okay. a, a a bombing yeah but he was oh. later you know he was eventually he was eventually exonerated and so were his co-defendants although his um you know father passed away while he was still yeah. uh roughly imprisoned yeah so it might sound like a stupid question, but I've seen on like TV and movies, you go to like a prison cafeteria, they just put like this, like slop on your plate. Like what was the food actually like? <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not much different than that. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more organized. You have your tray and you walk it down the line and there's all these different stations that you stop. Like is this one person that puts the, the entree in the, and uh, the starch, whether there's you know potatoes or rice or yeah. you know or noodles, and then there's another person that that you as you're sliding your tray and your plate down, another person puts vegetables, and you keep going down. Another person there's there's bread and there's butter, and then towards the end there's whatever they're serving for uh, uh, for for dessert, and you get get a cup of Kool Aid. But so oh. uh, it is a little bit more organized in that way rather than just one stop plop drop. Yeah. Uh, but that having been said, in terms of the food quality. Uh, absolutely terrible. I mean, sometimes the food would be uh, would be burned. Other times it wouldn't quite be uh, fully cooked. And at still other times, um, you know, there would be an issue with the portion control. Yeah. So I, like, for example, uh, when it was uh, they served pizza, they, they gave out one slice of pizza, which would be maybe um, half of the size of a Sicilian uh, piece. So that would be yeah. uh, that would be the main that would be the main course. So uh, Sometimes, you know, just given that as I remember Sunday dinner, we'll put quotes around that was uh, two pieces of bologna, a piece oh. of cheese, an old hot dog bun, not even a piece of bread, a small bag of chips that ha mostly has air in it and maybe a quarter of a sliced peach. And that was Sunday dinner. Oh, so it wasn't it wasn't no. that much, mate. Not that much. Did, did you not get like hamburgers or like chicken fingers or anything? No, it was just all that horrible stuff. Well, look, they did have they they did give hamburgers. I mean, it wasn't real chopped meat. It was it was soybean. It was yeah. uh, soy burn soybean. You know, they gave uh, they could give chicken fingers. No, but they did give like they did have like a chicken patty that they they did give out. Some of it was decent. I mean, I actually liked the yeah. chicken patty, actually. You know, the hamburgers were decent, but there was a lot of other food that was um, 
you know, that was uh, not very good. Like I said, it was burned or it was yeah. burned or not properly cooked. And, you know, sometimes I would bring a lot of different condiments with me to the mess hall. Like I'd bring packets of ketchup and mustard or hot sauce or pesto and pack it. And I would just try to doctor up whatever they served yeah. just to try to make it a little bit easier to wolf down. <laughs> yeah. Did you get like other people stealing other people's food as well? Because like, obviously it's quite a small portion. Did, did people go around taking... No, food. no, that didn't. No, that did not. No, that did not. That didn't happen. But there, what there was though, there was there was a lot of tray watching. So yeah. uh, the the phrase, uh, "Are you going to eat that? Yeah, are you eating that?" was heard often. So everybody had a different level of tolerance of what they yeah. could eat. So what I might not be able to eat, you might be able to stomach. So, so you, you swap see stuff it, around. If like, you see it, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, you give me this, I'll give you that. Or, you know, you might wait for five or six minutes. You see I'm not touching something. Hey, you, 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 eat, you eat that. You know, so that might that would be where that would, uh, where that would come in at. Yeah. And, and what was the first meal you had when you like left prison? Yeah, I had mussels with fried diavolo sauce. Yeah, with a nice. side with a side of big ziti and uh, Neapolitan ice cream. And so actually, when I was uh, having a bite of the Neapolitan ice cream with a spoon, as I'm bringing the spoon to my mouth, yeah. you know, uh, there was a photographer there from the media, and he like snapped the picture. So for a half a second, I kind of sort of felt what it might be like to be a celebrity with a paparazzi, yeah. uh, you know, popping out of nowhere with the with the camera, um, you know. But just to round up, we we're talking about prison. Um, you know, I want to mention that it was not just a physical thing, but yeah. also you fight off uh, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, yeah. suicidal ideation. Uh, so I did lose seven appeals. I did get turned down for parole as well, yeah. uh, ma mainly because I maintained my innocence instead of expressing remorse and taking responsibility. Uh, eventually, I was exonerated a after 16 years. I mean... Yeah, after I lost all the seven of appeals, I wrote letters for four years trying to get a lawyer and investigator to take my case for free. Because the only way back in a court once your appeals are over, yeah, is if you can find some new evidence. So that meant I needed someone to look for the evidence for me since I was locked up and I would yeah. not be would not be looking for anything myself personally. Uh, so that that I got turned down for parole. Ultimately, I did get exonerated through further DNA testing. So one of the letters I wrote uh found its way to an investigator and she uh got the innocence project to take my case and once yeah. they took my case uh, that was the first key the district attorney left office that had fought all my appeals and then we took the crime scene dna evidence and we put it in the dna data bank and we got lucky that it identified the actual perpetrator whose wow. dna was only in that data bank because left free while i was doing time for his crime he killed the second victim uh, three and a half years later after who was a school teacher and had yeah. two children, he killed her three and a half years after killing the victim in my case. Oh, wow. And, and they basically, they arrested him. They arrested, arrested him, him and he was, yeah. yeah, they arrested him. And, you know, I, I, my conviction was overturned and I was released. And then a uh, short time after that, they dismissed the charges against me on actual innocence grounds. So, so when you initially left, you still had these charges over you. So you couldn't get like a job or anything. Is that right? That's right. So, like, what, yeah. what did you do for money? Because you just left, like, prison and you've got no money. Well, I, uh, I started doing... So I met somebody who had been a concert promoter. Yeah. And I, he knew that I wanted to try to do professional speaking. So, yeah. you know, his, his skills at negotiating contracts were what, 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 were what translated over. So I started doing uh, speaking engagements. And then I did 
I did get a job as a weekly columnist. Yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah. So, but I mean, I know I was always, other than that, I was always passed over. I was always passed over for gainful employment, you know, and uh, as a result of that, I did lack stability of housing. At one point, I was just a couple of weeks away from being in a homeless shelter, but oh. Mercy College allowed me to live, which gave me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree. They allowed me to live on campus and they gave me, they gave me a meal plan. Uh, so it, it took five years before I got compensated, but rounding wow, out five years. It took me five years before I got anything. Yeah, you'd think it, it would right. be sort of instant as soon as you they realize they like fucked up. They'd just give you the money. They should do it that yeah. way, but that's not that's not that still doesn't work that way. Wow. Uh, but it was very difficult reintegrating back into society. Uh, the world was different. Yeah, uh, cell cell phones, G- GPS, internet hadn't been it, it hadn't been created previously. Uh, cult- culture was different. Cities and towns uh, looked. Cities and towns look different as well. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in an alternative uh, reality. Yeah. Uh, you know, a parallel world that I didn't belong in. There were the psychological uh, after effects. It's common for people to have post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety, fear of seeing law enforcement, uh, feeling of having been frozen in time, feeling of processing things at a slower speed. Stigma. Uh, what, you're in yeah. What was it like going back to your hometown afterwards or have you, have you yes. been back there? Yeah. No, I definitely have been back there. Yeah. I, I, I go there semi-frequently now. Yeah. Uh, first time I went there, I'm not going to lie to you. I was kind of frightened because the last time yeah. I was there, I was a, really a hated figure and I wasn't sure how people were going to react to me, but yeah. uh, people react very warmly to me. And when That's people would too. see me, they would, they would start honking the horns and waving and coming up to me and shaking my hand and everything. So I kind of got like a hero's uh, welcome, triumphant return type thing, which made me feel good since I was last time I was there I was a hated figure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, that was good going back, but it did it did have that. And then you know, I, one difficulties I found was that the lieutenant who oversaw everything, uh, which happened to me, he actually had become a um, the police chief, uh, based in part on the on his you know, his work in my case. And even yeah. after his role was clear, they stayed with him as the police chief for another six or seven years. Yeah. So that, that was going to be my next question, actually. Like, did you see any of the, the cops that um, put you in jail when you went back? Well, I do. I saw, I saw him one time. I was at the same event that he was at, but yeah, but um, you know, but beyond that, I mean, I did file a lawsuit and, you know, yeah. and when you're in litigation with people, you're not supposed to, talk with them outside of the the litigation so i was in the same room with the cops during the depositions but that was um, that was very very hard yeah one time i broke decorum you know uh this uh, detective who had pretended to be my friend the one who conveyed the threat and i like he waved at me and and nodded his head and you know like if we were you know we were friends from back in the day yeah yeah, and I'm like, yo, and then I'm like, yo, dude, like, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm thinking, like, yo, I, I yelled at him actually. I said, yeah, like, he put yo, you cost me, years. you cost me 16 years of my life. Yeah, and, and just as quickly, and just as quickly, he, he said, he, he yelled back out, I didn't cost you anything. You, you think they'd be remorseful, like, um, like so sorry, we all, we got it wrong, like, and but he's acting like that. That's insane. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, but that's true. Yeah. So what was your your family like after when you come out as well? Did you see a lot of them? Yeah, the overwhelming majority of them did not come to see me while I was in prison. Like I saw yeah. my brother three times in 16 years, not at all in the last decade. 
uh, grandmother passed away while I was in. My mother was the only consistent visitor, but although in the last uh, in the last six years, I was lucky if I saw her once every uh, six weeks. I was once every six months. But yeah. when I would see when I would see members of my extended family, it would be uh, an awkward experience because I knew who they were intellectually. Yeah. And they knew who I was, but I was a different person. And so were they. So but eventually, I mean, we worked through that. I think I'm in a decent place now with, with everybody. Uh, That's good. On, I do make rounds on holidays and things like that. So I do. I do enjoy that. I, I put things back together as much as I can. But. You know, I mean, they're not like everyday factors in my life. They're just people that I see, you know, a few a few times uh, a few times a year. But I just I do yeah. the best that I can. You, you still have a, is your is your mother still alive today? Sorry. Yeah, thank God yeah. she is. I'm actually I'm actually going to visit her tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's nice. her birthday, actually. Oh, that's nice. So I'm going to make the three hour drive and uh, yeah. go go visit her on her uh, on her birthday. Yes. Is she, does she still live in the town that um, no this happened in? No. No, she no, she lives uh, upstate New York now. She lives in Cobleskill, yeah. which is three hours away from uh, three hours away from me. Yes. Uh, so, what what was it like for her? Like, still being in the town that this happened in? Did many people like have a go at yeah. her for this? Uh, I mean, it was difficult for her. I mean, people would, you know, she would sometimes she she said that you know sometimes she'd be in the grocery store or other places she would hear people talking about it. Yeah, you know, and some people shunned her as well. So it was just on it was on that level. I mean, it didn't go. Thank God it didn't go beyond that. Yeah, that's good. But it really impacted my uh, brother, who was uh, three and a half years younger than him. I mean, his, yeah, goes to the same school. school as you. Yeah, he went to the same school district. I mean, you know, uh, you know, and the kids in the school bus, they would, uh, you know, say his brother was a rapist, and they would say other nasty things. They try to hit him and stab him with pencils, and eventually yeah. he dropped out of school. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. So he has yet to uh, actually go back and get a GED. I mean, at yeah. one point he turned to drugs and alcohol to deal with the pain of what happened to me. But uh, he cleaned himself up. I'm happy to report that. But yeah. the street, but the street mannerisms that he learned in the course of, you know, while he was in that lifestyle, he still retains those mannerisms and language. You know, so yeah. So um, if you do you still speak to him though, and you still. I still speak okay. to him. I still yeah. see him once in a while, but you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't like yeah. hyperactivity. I don't like yeah. cursing. I don't like, you know, over the top. And that's not really my way. I like things, you know, calm yeah. and calm and respectful. And, you know, that's not what he is. So it yeah. does, it does get into a little bit of tension at times. And, you know, uh, usually I can deal with him for two or three hours. So then I'm like, yeah, yeah. But I usually tell him ahead of time, look, I'm going to I'm going to be. So my brother lives in Albany, which yeah. is uh, New York's capital. And I go there a lot to the capital because that's where the legislature is. And I regularly meet with elected officials as part of the advocacy work. So my life is dedicated to freeing people that are wrongfully imprisoned, that were the same position I was and working for policy changes aimed at preventing that in the first place. Wow. So I go to. Al- Thank you. So I went to I you actually used some of the money that I got. I yeah. used some of the compensation and I started uh, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And, you know, we've been able to get 10 people home. And Wow. 10 people. And, yeah. From 2011 forward, we got we freed 10 people and we pa- helped pass three laws. And then I'm um, in the coalition group. It could happen to you. And we passed yeah. another four laws. And I serve on the Global Advisory Board, Restorative Justice International also. And so 
you know, I, I'm involved in a lot of advocacy work. But my point is that I go to Albany a lot before that advocacy work. And that's yeah. where he lives. And so I tell him, look, I'm going to I'm coming. I'm coming on this day. I'm going to be done by five or six o'clock. We can have dinner and I got to go by nine. But uh, yeah, that's like most families. To be fair. You don't want to spend too much. You, you still love them, but you just don't want to spend too much time with them. That's like, right. That's like most. But I, but, but look, it's manageable and it's better than not, not doing, you know, it's better yeah, than exactly. not spending time at all. And it's better than getting into uh getting into arguments and stuff like that so yeah uh, so so when you you awarded your money you, you spent mm -hmm. um some of it on and um, building your foundation that's right i did I explain spent one, more of that yeah yeah sure so i i spent one point i put 1.5 million dollars from the money into yeah. the foundation gave us a you know give us that uh running running start yeah so i mean i did do that but you know, my, I have the majority of the money just invested in conservative investments and they pay me a certain amount of money every month and, you know, dividends and interest. And that's all yeah. that I spend. I don't touch the principal because I never want to go back to having yeah. nothing at all. And that serves as a salary for me. So okay. this yeah. way I'm not I don't I don't I spend 40 or 50. I spend like really 50 to 60 hours a week doing advocacy work. You know yeah. things related to the foundation, whether that's speaking across the country, some internationally, whether that's meeting with elected officials or doing media interviews or uh, approving cases and being you know I've, and I've become a lawyer as yeah. well. I'm a, oh, I'm a lawyer, district attorney. Is that right? Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to run for that office probably in nice. like seven years. Nice. But right now I'm an attorney. I've entered some of the cases as a lawyer. So things related to cases that I'm trying to raise money as well. I mean, my ultimate dream is to uh, have an office in each state in the United States and in each country, because I see this as a worldwide uh, problem. Yeah. We have a crowdfunding site uh, on Patreon. You know, my crazy dream is what if there was what if there was 25,000 people who could afford three to five dollars on a you know recurring monthly basis that would give us a large budget to help us to uh, hire uh, additional uh, attorneys, paralegals, investigators, et cetera. So we could get more people. Could, that, could, that would help us to free more people and we could do policy work more and more than just the three states that, yeah. that, we're, uh, that, that we're doing. So my point in all of this, though, was that I spend 50 to 60 hours a week doing, doing yeah. advocacy work and, you know, and I don't get paid for it, but it's okay because I make money in that other way that I mentioned to you. Yeah. And so that's what, that's what, uh, works for me no yeah so it's very admirable like I'm, I'm sure most people would just take that money like and retire and just like chill for the rest of their life but you've actually yes. done you've actually turned it into something good which is which is the best part yeah yeah I, I it is because um look I I do believe my purpose in the world is to do this work. That's how I make sense of everything. That's how I don't lose my mind <laughs> and I do feel and I do it is healing it is cathartic it is it is, uh, it, it is meaningful. And I feel really fortunate and blessed that, you know, I am free because I know that there's a lot of other people that are wrongfully in prison that, you know, have not yeah. been cleared or will never been cleared. And I also feel like I've gotten certain educational opportunities and everybody has, has gotten, I mean, I've, I have the bachelor's, I have a master's degree. My thesis is on wrongful conviction cause and reform. I have the law degree. And so I think that, uh, having those opportunities, knowing a lot of people haven't. So I feel a moral responsibility to do everything I can, you know, in trying and doing this advocacy work. Yeah. Wow. It's insane. It's, it's just amazing what you've done. Like you've turned like the worst situation into like the best you can do. Like you're literally just helping people now. So it's crazy.
Um, so, so final question, really, um, unless you have anything more to the story, but um, like, what would you, like, what advice would you give your 17 year old self on his first night in jail? I would say, remember, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. And just when you can't go any further, you know, you remember that might have been the key moment. That might be the key moment where if you just kept going, you might have had a breakthrough. So I would uh, that that would be that would be I would tell my 17 year old self that this isn't permanent, you know, that you are going to come out the other side. Just don't give up. Keep going. But the other thing I'll quickly mention as we wrap up, uh, I just wanted to mention a couple quick things. So firstly, uh, the uh, there's a documentary short out, out about my advocacy work and life post exoneration on, on Amazon Prime, which is nice. uh, called, uh, called Conviction. And, and I also want to mention that I, I do co-own the uh, uh, recharge, it's called Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game, which facilitates uh, formerly incarcerated people yeah. uh, with reintegrating back into society through icebreaker questions that help them to reconnect with their uh, friends and family. So I want to encourage people to check both of those things out. Uh, the re- website is rechargethegame.com and people can check out uh, that conviction there. And look, I'm on Facebook, on Instagram yeah. and uh, LinkedIn. So I do listen to, I do answer messages there. And if you want to keep up with my advocacy work, articles I appear in, media interviews I do, articles I write, presentations that are upcoming, I know you can keep up with all of that stuff uh, there. I do record my events and I share the link on social media. And, you know, I have done some presentations internationally. I've spoken in Canada and uh, I did a week, a week long series of events in Armenia and Argentina. And I'd nice. love to come to the UK as yeah, well. Yeah, you should definitely come to the UK. Come to Liverpool. To come to Yes, I would love to do that. I'd love to do some advocacy, do some speaking. Yeah. I like to, you know, pack a lot of fun. And I love doing, I love doing, I love doing new things. I like trying new food, going to places, trying new things, new activities. And to me, that's how I experience the world. So hope, you know, you throw the pebble out there and you never know yeah. what the ripple effect is. So all I need is one person, you know, exactly. one person. And if someone has a higher, you know, public profile than me, you know, would, would love someone to just, do a 30 second video reference the foundation and our yeah. work and encourage people on the crowdfunding site, but you know, always on the lookout for people who can help in one way or another, because, you know, this is much bigger than what one person, even with a team can, can do. We definitely need all hands on deck for sure. Yeah, sure. It definitely seems like a massive global issue. Yes. I, I know I'll make sure to put all the links and everything in the description of the podcast. So make sure to, to check all them out. Um, and just thanks, thanks for coming on as well. Um, it's just been like really great talking to you and I just really appreciate, appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me as well. That's okay.